This is Ted Peterson, and welcome to this edition of Musical Explorations. And this week we are going to take a look at the music of Henry Cowell. an excerpt from a piece called Anger Dance he wrote when he was 17. Henry Cowell, American composer, music theorist, pianist, teacher, publisher, and empresario. I wore a lot of hats. Um, which means, an empresario, of course, means a guy who stages music and brings talent into, into places. Um, I've been called an empresario of sorts when I put in concerts on with Ex-Indigo. But, but he was an empresario far below before Sal Hurok ever codified the name and made it part of Americana. He was born on March 11, 1897, and he died December 10, 1965. I never got to meet the man, and it's a, it was a sad thing. What a great mind. It would have been nice to, to meet. Well, I wouldn't want to have met him when he, when he died. I'd like to have met him when he was at the height of his career. His mother and father were writers, and, and they were kind of bohemians. Uh, there was a big movement back in those days to be bohemian. And it, what it meant, in, in reality, was just someone who didn't live a what they call a traditional lifestyle. And it was very popular at the time to, to live like that. So he was primed for a life that would challenge accepted beliefs. Lucky for us, and for American music, he uh, embodied the American trend of individualism self-reliance and discovery through experimentation, just like John Cage and other composers at the time. And entrepreneurship. He always thought he could make money doing this stuff, and sometimes it was true, sometimes not. And it was a zeitgeist at the time. Turn of the century, it was very popular very popular here and, and, and very positive. People really came to America. It was the lodestone. Uh, we didn't have the immigration problems quite like we had today, but there were some, and we, immigration laws were substantially different. But you could get to America and make a life here. And that was why people came. And we've been that way probably since the turn of the Civil War, since the close of the Civil War. Anyway, so his parents, uh, died, they divorced sometime around 1903. And uh, he stayed in contact with both of them. He stayed mostly with his mother. She wrote, interestingly enough, what's considered the first feminist novel. It's called Janet and Her Phoebe. So I don't know if they mistake feminism with lesbianism because I think it's it tends to be more leaning towards the idea that women could have sex and love each other just like a heterosexual relationship. I don't know if that would be called feminism or not. have to get a, an expert on that. Um, his father introduced him to Irish music, Irish jigs, stuff like that. He used to whistle them all the time, and he talks about that uh, too. Um so, and that music was important to him throughout his life. Henry loved that, loved folk music, Irish music, that type of stuff. He was homeschooled. His mother homeschooled him. He never really had much formal education. Uh, 
And somewhere in his mid-teens, it was about 13 or 14, he started banging away at music, and he was actually had a talent for it. So um, uh, what he did, of course, by the time he was 17, he was already composing. And I have a, a, a vocal excerpt of him uh, that he actually made for a radio show at an old station called KPFA. It's long out of existence now, but we will get to hear his voice, and that's important. At about the age 13, uh, he and his mother moved to Menlo Park. Uh, she, unfortunately, got cancer, and Henry became the primary uh, wage earner, and so he worked as a janitor, another composer who worked as a janitor. We find him coming out of the woodwork, I guess. And um, in 1914, he performed some of his piano pieces at a concert put on by this thing called the San Francisco Musical Club. And I guess his father was influential in those things, and his father got him actually... Uh, admitted into UC Berkeley. So, uh, he, but as I said, he did not have much formal education. He studied at places and then he, he left. Uh, after that, he went to New York, studied with Leo Ornstein, a very famous pianist who influenced a lot of people. And then he went back to um, California and became involved with the People's Temple out here. And uh, yes, the People's Temple and Halcyon, remember that, they have a lot of influence. Uh, he met this guy named John Varian, and I don't know who John Varian is precisely. I'm going to have to look him up and do some research about him, but uh, he hired Cowell to write music to uh, some of his mystical texts, and, and we're going to hear some of that. Uh, it's called The Tides of Manuan, and uh, about the god of motion and all that stuff, and I'll play some of that. Um, so anyway, uh, all we have left of it is the, is this thing called the prelude to it, and I'm going to play some of that... Uh, of that right now. In this piece, Cowell used uh, what's called tone clusters, and he, for all practical purposes, invented it. And I have a recording of him discussing that. And uh, Now, the dates are all different from his biographical dates, so don't pay too much attention to what he says about his dates. I composed wildly and feverishly in my early teenage years, and when I was 15 years old, I was invited to write music for an Irish play. 
and this was an Irish mythological play which had to do with Mananon, the god of motion and the god of the sea. And I was invited to write the theatrical music which would introduce the home of Mananon, the god of the sea, and especially in regard to the tides, the deep tides of Mananon. And I had to write some music that would put you in the mood of the deep tides as well as the waves of the sea. And this was rather a big job for a 15-year-old boy. And so I always thought in terms of making the musical material fit the idea, and I tried a couple of low octaves in certain rhythm, and they sounded just a little too definite, and so then I tried a couple of chords, which were better than the bare octaves, with the same low tidal rhythm. But this wasn't quite enough, and so then I got the idea of having all 13 of the lowest tones of the piano played together at one and the same time. But since I didn't have 13 fingers in the left hand, I played this with the flat of the hand, being very careful to get all the notes exactly equal and to have what I considered a reasonable tone quality there. In other words, I was inventing a new musical sound later to be called tone clusters, but I played this first in San Francisco about 50 years ago and last month. Okay, we can forgive him the, the dates. We don't know whether they were accurate or not accurate. But he did talk about tone clusters and how he went about doing clone clusters. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit later about tone clusters. But right now, I want to continue a little bit with his biography because it, it is interesting. Uh, World War I, he enlisted in the Army, and he served in uh, Pennsylvania. He was a kitchen aide and cook, that type of thing. And he did it for 15 months. He was honorably discharged in 1919. And as soon as he got out, of course, he headed back to L.A. While he was in New York, while he was up in the Army, he did get to go into New York and get to go to places uh, up in Northeast and do concerts and things up there. Remember, the United States wasn't impacted by the war the way Europe was. So uh, he made some good friends. And um, he... Uh, Worked and he got a, uh, had saved a little bit of money and he borrowed a bunch of money and he write, wrote this manuscript uh, called New Musical Resources. And um, he d had decided at this time that he was going to become an advocate for contemporary music. Now, this is 1920s, 1919, 1920. He was now going to become an advocate for new music in America. In addition, he published lots of other manuscripts, and, and uh, we'll talk about that later. He went to Europe again, um, traveled around a little bit, and did some concerts. He was getting known now a little bit, and he got exposed when he was in Europe to this magazine called Melos. And Melos was uh, uh, the new music society in Europe. It was after the war, and uh, they were trying to get themselves back together artistically. And uh, he met... Um, uh, not met, but he found the music of Bella Bartok and Hindemith and uh, Stephen Walpe and uh, um, uh, Arthur Schnabel. Now, these guys were f practically unknown in the United States. They might have been known in New York, but they were unknown. And he started including these in his publications and, and getting a lot of exposure. He also uh, joined two groups that were in the, the Northeast, in New York, when he was there. One was called the ICG uh, and that was founded by Edgar Varese. He joined it in 1921. 
And the other one was this thing called the Franco-American Music Society, and, uh, which later became Pro Musica, one of the largest uh, new music societies and music-supporting societies in the, in the world. But he was not going to be outdone. Henry Cowell went uh, and founded this thing called the New Music Society of California, 1925. He'd moved back to California. He always was a California native, and he was a California kind of person. Now, why start a new group like this um, when, when there were plenty of new groups around, when there were lots of support for new music around? Well, Cal was of the firm belief that all these other groups focused strictly on the music of European composers, and they were almost ignoring American composers. So he took it under himself to be an advocate for American composers. And we're very good. I'm glad he did that because we have a lot of composers today in schools of music that, uh, that, that, do, that exist now because of the work of Henry Cowell. Also, he was very concerned that there was a lot of music being created in the United States, especially on the West Coast, that was being totally ignored in the rest of the United States and most of the world. West Coast composers were not considered they were considered backwards in a sense. They weren't considered sophisticated or new or breaking new molds. Cal was on a mission to change that perception. And change that perception he did. He went on and published and edited this thing called New Music, a Quarterly of Modern Compositions. They published it every, every quarterly. And it uh, finally became known as the New Music Quarterly, like, uh, like the uh, music journals and other journals that were coming out, the, the, the professional ones are coming out on a quarterly basis. And he did the same thing. And it became an extremely popular publication and exposed a lot of composers. It got a lot of composers, a lot of attention. So because of his efforts, composers who would have been local niche composers, let's say in California, became now internationally known composers. And that was uh, uh, interesting and, and also very important. And he continued this his entire life until he died in, in uh, 1965. Uh, well, it might seem like uh, Henry was on the fast track to having a great career as a composer. But in 1936, he was arrested and he was accused of, of a fellatio with a young guy he had working at his house. He had a bunch of young guys digging a pool, making a pool at his house for him and his wife. And uh, this guy accused him of, of, uh, of sodomy. And in 1936, these kind of crimes were really serious. They were considered crimes. And he, I don't think uh, Cowell took it seriously because he, he didn't get a lawyer. He didn't do anything like that. He said, this is a joke. And, and, he, and the, I guess... Police interrogations in those days were not didn't have the Miranda law or anything like that, and they were beating the crap out of him. Well, he wasn't going to take that type of thing, and he I guess he confessed, or they said he confessed, but he was given a 15-year sentence and uh, sent to San Quentin. In San Quentin, he he made friends with the the what they didn't have like shot callers in those days, but the the prison enforcer, I guess you would say happened also to be the leader of the prison band. And he befriended uh, uh, Cowell, and Cowell taught him some music and did some arrangements for him and became his buddy, I guess, his protectorate. So he never was stuck into the horrible sides of prison life that you would, you would think uh, he would get put in. But he still had 
was in jail for four years, and finally his wife appealed to the governor, and the governor finally pardoned the guy. It was a, a unbelievable uh, situation. But something that could happen, could happen to anybody. Here he is, a, a composer, he, he makes a joke of something and says something, and next thing you know, he never had a trial. There's no record of a trial or anything. They just, uh, it was like they, he copped a plea, but he never went to trial. He never went in front of a judge. There's no record of any of that stuff, but I guess he went, you know, go, to, go directly to jail. Do not have oral sex with men or you'll go to jail. Half the women I know would be uh, in jail now. All right, so. Uh, let's go on. He was labeled as a felon. It uh, was very unfortunate because of academic it just kept him out of academic uh, uh, employment. He, even though he was a, a popular at schools and went to schools a lot, he, he was banned from ac- true academic uh, security, that type of thing. Anyway, uh, one of those things that happens. But <clears throat> he was an experimental guy. And he took it like a like a guy, he took uh, took his unfortunate side with a man. And he kept working and kept doing his music. Okay, real quick, I'm going to run down some of the the things that he did. I'm going to give a date, and I'm just going to fill in some stuff that uh, the, uh, that approximately he did. 1927, he founded the New Music Society, became America's foremost advocate for modern music, and we know he did that. Um, modern, uh, of course, since that time, modern has come to mean a style of music. And when he was working, modern was anything new. It was the modern world. We we're going into the modern world. But now modern is considered a particular style, a modern, it's a modern style. So, uh, But that didn't happen when Cal existed. It was still synonymous with, uh, with new. Uh, 1925 to 1964, he published over 200 articles. And you can still find these articles today and essays on music. And um, their critiques, he wrote a lot about other composers. He wrote a bunch of, uh, of ideas, where mu- music is going, where music should be, what are musical resources, what, is, what should a composer have. Uh, for example, we have this small orchestra here, the, uh, the community orchestra. He would have absolutely been, uh, as I am trying to do, get him to perform contemporary music. Why? Because it's a small orchestra. We have, a, we have composers that live here. They should be promoting the music of local composers. We shouldn't just be doing stuff that everybody knows and, and satisfying a, a very small little clique of, of uh, so-called musical social cognoscenti who, who only allow one type of music to be heard. He would have been railing uh, at the orchestras, and he did uh, in small orchestras where he existed. He got performances, interestingly enough, and he helped other composers get performances. But it's one of the things that our little orchestra here should be doing is playing music of local composers. We should be doing it. Every season they should do two or three. Uh, and if we find them they like, do them again. And if we don't like them, give them a second shot and see what happens. You never know what can come out. You know, Henry Cowell now is considered a, a, a touchstone and a great American composer, it's like John Cage. But at the time, he was not all that uh, popular. He, he, he was popular mostly through his writing, similar with Cage. So when you never know what you have living next door to you. Um, anyway, he started uh, uh, doing all different types of explanations of what he thought music should be in sounds. Now, we played this, uh, the Tides of Manuan. Manuanan, I guess is how you say it, really. And that's by this uh, Varian. I'm going to have to find out about this Varian guy, but uh, this is a musical program. He's a writer and probably wouldn't put him on there. So let's take a look um, 
at what some of the uh, ideas that he had musically. What typified his music? One of the things that we know, tone clusters. This has become synonymous with Henry Cowell, tone clusters. And in fact, when Slonimsky did his talks uh, with, with John Cage, he talked about uh, uh, Henry Cowell too. So I'm going to play some examples of tone clusters and how they work. And you can see how they, how they look. I'll play them right on the keyboard here and we'll find out exactly what is a tone cluster and what is it made of and what does it sound like. While we're doing that, we're going to take a look at how Cowell approached dissonance because it has a lot to do with how he worked with clusters. Now, in, uh, in music, we have two terms we use called consonance and dissonance. Consonance is when the overtones of two notes coincide, when they're harmonious, like the third. That's a consonance. A uh, fifth considered a consonant. The sixth, considered a consonant. Cowell went different. He said, okay, the, the only dissonances I'm going to have are the extreme dissonances. In other words, we have scale patterns uh, uh, from uh, C to C would be C to C is like a scale. A chromatic scale is, of course, all the notes between the two Cs. Okay, but the, le the least note of that is called a half step, like between C and C sharp, that's a half step. The, uh, that's considered a dissonance. Henry Cowell said a minor second or a, a half step is a dissonance. Everything else, he said, was a consonance. The other dissonance, he said, was this thing called the major seventh, which is all the notes except the one note from the C below it. So it's like a minor second, but expanded in reverse. So now it's called a major seventh, and it's this. Those are the two dissonances. The rest are consonances. And I'll play a couple pieces that will show how that works. What is a tone cluster? Is when you take a series of notes, let's say between here a C, uh, a G, and a G, in the bass notes, this G and this G, and I play all the notes on the, all the white notes with my hand. There's a tone cluster from the G to the G. If I move it up to a B, it's there. If I move it up to a D, okay, it's there. If I play all the white notes and all the black notes, I've got all the notes between those two uh, intervals, the G and the G, and it sounds like this. Okay, those are tone clusters. And Cowell used those clusters in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he used bigger ones, sometimes he used smaller ones. So he had even forearm clusters where he would play, it would sound like this. This is my forearm from about the middle C down as far as my handle reach, and it's pretty long, so I can go all the way down to the lowest C in the bass here. I can go from here up to here with my forearm. I can even play all the black notes that way too. But he used also smaller clusters. And uh, sometimes he would use just four notes and he'd hit them. There's a note from here to here and these notes in between. So, so he would play around on the piano, he would go
play clusters like that, called fifths clusters. That's how he played them. Now, I, if I want to play the black notes and the white notes, he would notate them differently. He would notate ones that are supposed to be white notes with white circles and no flags, and the ones with the black notes he would have with flags. But we're not going to go into durations right now. But anyway, he had notation systems made for that. So you could play like this. White notes, black notes. White notes, black notes. White notes, black notes. And he could write just as if those were individual notes, he would write counterpoint. So... And he would write music using those tone clusters. This was the whole thing. The other thing he did with clusters was he would roll them. So we have, let's say between this note and this note, he would roll. Up and down. Higher. Now this is just a fifth. Right? But all those notes are played and he would play chords and notes like this in songs. Okay, now in the Tides of Manuanan, he would play clusters like that, and, and he used them to represent the tide coming in. And that's how he wrote those effects. Remember, he's as a kid. He says he was 15. All of his biographies and everybody who has studied his music, written about him or worked out his timelines in life, puts that between 17 and 19. I don't care. 15, 17, 19. It's for a kid that young to go that far outside of music and invent something like that to be used in music is still a profound and very good thing. So that's one thing he did. Tone clusters, and that's what he primarily is known for. There were some other things, too, in his use of dissonance. Um, but the tone clusters is a big thing. I'm going to play a piece called Dynamic Motion, uh, an excerpt from it, which is all these tone clusters used in a very different way. And you'll hear them, and you'll hear how it sounds.
So you can certainly see the clusters at work. He played, he played rolled clusters in there. He played dynamic clusters. And I suggest that you go out and get this music and get some of Kyle's music and um, download it. You can get it on iTunes, I think, and some other places. But buy the records. There's lots of performers performing Kyle's stuff. There's been kind of a resurgence of it lately because with the advent of minimalism, people are looking for the roots of this of minimalism and where people are using minimal means. What minimalism means really is using minimal means to get the maximum effect. Cowell certainly did that in spades. I mean, he was, used minimal, almost nothing to produce a lots of very good music. Okay, in addition, remember, Powell was an advocate for new music. 1927, he wrote an article called The Impasse of Modern Music, where he compared uh, people like Palestrina, Bach, Monteverdi, Beethoven, Mozart, the composers we now have come to know as standard and general repertory and, and the war horses, and he said at one time they were just like the composers that live today. They were trying to get their works performed. It was a different system of, of, of sponsorship and those type of things. In some ways different, some ways the same. But uh, they, they faced, if they, his argument was that if they faced this, the climate of today, much of the music that we have come to love and know and, and cherish would never have been written because these composers would never have been given the opportunity. So you've got to support your local composer. You've got to find the composer. You've got to support them. You've got to commission works from them. If you're going to have an estate, you're going to die, commission a requiem. Do something to get these uh, composers heard, including myself. I'm in the same boat. So, all right. So let's see. Um, one of the other things that Henry did was he looked at ratios. He wrote a lot, remember, Impasse of Modern Music, and he wrote a bunch of other stuff. But he was very interested in ratios. Now, ratios are the relationships of one thing to another in proportion. So um, we have ratios of, of overtone series. We have ratios of, of a harmonic series of the notes in relationship to each other. And it's a, that's a pretty complex study of acoustics. I'm not going to go into that. But what, what Henry tried to do was he tried to equate durations such as an eighth note, a quarter note, a half note, those type of things. I'll give you a quick example. Okay, this isn't intended to be a primer on music composition or anything like that. But it's supposed to give you an, an idea of note duration so you know what I'm talking about. Mostly Western music is consisted of divisions of two or three. In earlier times before we had modern uh, notation, uh, there was a lot of three and they considered because the church dominated, they figured three was holy, the Trinity, all that stuff. But And walking was sexy. It had to do with people, so the beat of two was discouraged. The beat of three was considered holy, but I don't know how much that really held in, in overall. But if we have, let's say, a, a, a thing of 4-4 four, four means four beats to a measure and four beats in a measure, and, and the quarter note gets one beat. So it means if you look at a measure of music, which is just a, a division, uh, you would have something like, four notes, right? Equally spaced at, at some tempo. A half of that would be an eighth note. So if this was a quarter note, eighth notes would be half of it. I'm going to play uh, eighth note in a different note. Okay, so that's a half duration. Most of Western music is done that way. Now, Cowell said baloney. This is a whole bunch of baloney. I think we should have more. We should emancipate 
duration. We should emancipate rhythm. Why should we be uh, either marching along or, or tied to some holy trinity or something like that? Well, what he said was he's going to try a new system, okay? And I'm going to describe it in kind of in his words. I'm going to paraphrase a lot. But see if you can figure this out. A whole note is still a whole note. And it has a value of whatever the measure is. In, in our way of thinking, it's usually four, okay? So a whole note would have a value of four. Let's just assume that. And all the other notes then, are, uh, he, he called that a one. In other words, it's a whole note, it's one. Anything else of that was a subdivision. If we had that note divided into three, we would have a, a value of three. If it was divided into four, we would have a value of four. He called that a quarter note. We call that a quarter note. He said that has now a value of four. Eighth notes have a value of eight because there's eight eighth notes within the whole note, right? Within the one. Well, he said, gee, why do we have to get stuck at that? Why don't we have divisions of three and divisions of 12? And he worked out a system where he could take that whole note instead of just having four beats, it could actually consist of now 12 beats. And, and we have very elaborate ways to notate that, but you have to learn how to do it. You have to, t it takes a lot. Kyle said, oh, I can get around all that. I'll invent a 12th note head. So we have note heads for whole notes, quarter notes, eighth notes. If we want to do different types of things, we have things called triplets and quintuplets and stuff, but that's a little more sophisticated. He said, we can get rid of that. I, can, I don't need to have a quintuplet. I can make a fifth note. So he devised this system where he had all these crazy little note heads. Instead of just the circle, uh, a, a hollow circle, which we use for our whole notes and half notes, and the, the colored in uh, circle, which is like a little dot that we use for quarter notes, eighth notes, sixteenth notes, anything uh, of, of smaller uh, duration, we use the, the colored in dot. Well, he said we can have a triangle note head. And we can have a note head that looks like a half moon. And we can have a note head that looks like a, a, a line shooting out of it. And all these things now the musicians are going to look at and they're going to say, wow, that's a 12th note. I know that there's a, we, I, in my mind, I'm going to, now this is really mental gymnastics. I'm going to take whatever tempo we're at. I'm going to shift my thinking and I'm going to now start dividing it instead of four, four and getting that beat going, you know, one, two, three, four. I'm going to now divide it into 12 and I'm going to know how to play that note within the four, the four beat thing. And uh, it just turned out to be mentally much more complex than it looked like on paper. Conceptually, it was looked like a great idea. In reality, it didn't work. He wrote a piece called Fabric where he put all these different note heads and all these different types of things in and people couldn't play it. And it was, it just became a joke. Well, it, the, the, the thing was, Cowell was not a stupid person. He was a very bright man. So he figured out that this was logically consistent, but it didn't work out when you tried to practically put it into music and play it. So his system, while he divined this whole system, not, never found popular uh, acceptance and never was really accepted in, in music. Now, the whole idea of different note heads, though, has taken on a, a life of its own. Uh, we don't know if it's 100% from Cowell, but in percussion music, there are all kinds of note heads used to denote certain things. 
and that is specific to percussion music, and percussionists have gotten quite comfortable with playing music with different kind of note heads in it. As far as general music is concerned, it hasn't worked out at all. But still, it was a contribution. Cowell made it. He tried to get it accepted, and people just rejected it. Now, what other things did Cowell promote and, and go on? He developed, uh, well, he didn't develop it, but uh, there had been an incorporation in Western music for quite some time uh, in the early 1800s uh, when there was a big exploration of African music and Indian music and, and uh, music from Southeast Asia. Uh, the whole idea of, of, of Asian music and uh, put into Western music. Ravel wrote some, W.C. used it and used these ideas. Um, and the Oppressionists, and then other people have used them too. Even to this day, we Philip Glass uses some stuff from Indian music, and other people do also. But incorporation of those type of things into Western music was called exoticism. Now, Cal fell in love with that stuff. First of all, it fell into that whole, he was into that whole mystical California thing. Remember the, the People's Temple and Varian and uh, mystical things in the, and uh, the hero's son, he wrote a piece called The Hero's Son and, and the Worshipful Owl and things like that. But um, as he grew older and, and, and different titles of things, it showed his uh, uh, involvement with exoticism. But he used it in a, in a whole different way. And uh, he, he basically looked at how Russian composers were incorporating exoticism and Russian melodies into their music. And his father, remember, his father got him interested in Irish fiddle music. So he, instead of using the idea of putting Eastern music into, into Western music, he wanted to now use the exoticism of folk music, basically African, uh, from Africa, uh, and black music, minstrel music, those type of things. And... Uh, also American Indian music and um, uh, and music of the of the poor, uh, the white what they would call the itinerant white uh, people, the workers, the farmers, the the uh, people that Woody Guthrie was singing about and singing to. So uh, there's a piece that he wrote of actually a set of pieces uh, based on um, on those that type of music, and I'm going to play it and and then we'll talk a little bit about it. That was an excerpt from a bunch of pieces called Melting Pot. Now we're going to listen to something from the thing called Country Set. As you can hear, very nice sounding, very sonorous, uh, hardly any dissonance in there at all. Uh, it, it, this typified a lot of Cal's music and represented a real dichotomy in the man. 
He was both an experimenter and adventurer. I mean, he came with new notation systems, the tone clusters, exoticism. And then on the other side, he had this, this very simple part of him who just wanted to make pretty music and make music that would, people would really like and could associate with and represented America. He really wanted to find something that was from the soul and the roots of America. And then he, did, he tried to do that with this music. Now, along the experimental lines, he got involved with Leon Theremin. Now, we know Leon Theremin. He invented that music, the, the uh, thing that was heard in Spellbound uh, initially and heard in other music. But uh, Edgar Varese also worked with Leon Theremin. And they, he, in association with Cowell, invented this thing called the Rhythmicon. Now, the Rhythmicon was a tiny little keyboard, uh, and you would play it. And as this keyboard played, you would hit one note, it would set off a series of events that you could program on little discs inside the thing. You have to look it up on the, on the internet and see if you could find Rhythmicon. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, let's take a listen to what this crazy little thing sounds like. Now, Cowell did write a piece for Rhythmicon and Orchestra. And I tried to dig up a copy of it. I don't have a recording of it. Uh, I went out on the, uh, on the internet and did a search. And there is a uh, video on YouTube. But the video is somehow the corrupted, the audio file is corrupted. And uh, you can't hear it. It's just a big buzz going on. So you can't hear what they're doing. Or, or get any idea. I don't know of any other um, source. Uh, I'm sure somewhere there's something out there, but I don't have it in my collection. And I have a, almost everything that Cal wrote uh, and, and some other stuff, in, in fact, uh, audio stuff that he did. But um, so let's, uh, okay, Rimlicon, done. So we listened to the folk music that he did, exoticism and that type of stuff. Now, one of the other things that uh, Cowell did, and we can't really play this because he didn't really do much with it, but he took a good, solid look at the recording industry. Uh, other artists have do, done that, including Glenn Gould, who, who even wrote at one point that he thought that, um, that any music other than recorded music would die out, that, that live playing would die. And there's reasons for that with Glenn Gould. And, and I, when I do a program on Glenn Gould, we'll talk about why that he developed that attitude. But... Uh, Cowell was looking at this many years earlier. There had been people listening to, like Varez listening to vacuum tubes, and there were people doing these orchestras, these crazy rooms that you would go into with all kinds of sound going on, like sound sculptures and those type of things. There was a lot of that stuff going on. So Cowell was not off base when he started thinking of using the recording industry and the processes for recording uh, just like you would to use a live music. It's like you would notate stuff on a music. He thought you could make sounds and put them on a record. Now, this is 1930. Uh, people were thinking about this. It wasn't his, I don't think it was a totally original thought, but who knows? Cowell was a, 
incredible thinker. But he wrote an article called Music of and for the Records. And in that article, he said that music could be written without using any notation. You could just use sounds, and you could order those sounds on, on recording and then get several recordings together, and you could have more than one voice. Like you could have uh, 20 records of playing of, of all these little sounds that put the pieces together. Now, there's no record that he wrote anything like that um, at all. The closest thing he came probably would be he, uh, and I think this was not based so much on his, his work with his ideas about recordings and records, but I think his idea of the Rhythmicon, he wrote this thing called Ostinato Pianissimo. And I'm going to play that, and you can listen. You heard now the, the little, um, uh, little Rhythmicon and uh, made those little squeaky sounds, and then you would, you would take somehow and work that out into a bigger uh, ensemble. I don't know how it would work. I would like to see it. I'd like to experiment with it, but I, who could get one? I, nobody has one. Maybe Frank Zappa had one. He had a lot of exotic uh, things in his library. All right, so let's uh, take a look at uh, Ostinato pianissimo so it's gonna be a little hard to hear at the beginning the recording i have is from a live performance
Now, Cowell had gone to Europe in 1933 and 1934. And he went there to study, believe it or not, he went there to study Indian music. There was a teacher who was all the rage uh, uh, and was bringing out this whole idea of Indian music and Indian music theory. It's one, it's one of the few other music systems on the planet that has a, a concise and written down uh, description of the theory, how you're supposed to play the music, how to do this stuff. And, and only one way does it differ from Western music, and that is in the whole idea of harmony, where you stack notes on top of each other to make chords. They don't have that. That did not exist in, in Indian music theory. Now, of course, in the modern world, harmony has taken over everywhere, and you can hear Western ideas of harmony going anywhere. But uh, that, that little ostinato and that thing must have been what he heard because it was a big fair that was going on in Europe, and they had all these different people producing music from Java, Bali, from Thailand, Vietnam. And this sounds to me, and I think he, he was more influenced by the Balinese gamelan than he was by the Rhythmicon. But let's hear a gamelan. Okay, that's a sample of gamelan. And uh, you, the idea that you can hear is these different rhythms working together. Now, the little rhythmicon, of course, was very limited in what it could do, but it was made in 1930. It was This gamelan ensemble is a huge ensemble. I used to play with the gamelan ensemble down at UCLA when um, uh, Dr. Hook was directing it. He had some guy come in from, uh, from Bali, and he was uh, instructing us how to do the... Uh, the gamelan there. We had, I think, in the in the one I played, I played only for one semester, but uh, we had, um, I don't know, probably 25 people. I played what was known as the Gender Wayong, which is a kind of big uh, marimba. Okay, let's uh, go back to Cowell here. Now, I was in school, and we never studied Henry Cowell. I went to a very good university, had great teachers. I went to Cal State University, Northridge. Cowell was virtually unknown and was kind of looked down upon. And I don't know why, uh, but, it, I, but the more I've looked into the man and over the years, um, there's a couple of things. One, he was called a neo-primitive because he used not these big established means uh, that were so popular in Europe at the time, Europe at the time. Uh, Schoenberg was, was developing the 12-tone technique. Uh, music was emancipated. Dissonance was emancipated. Europe was on fire with this new kind of music. And uh, Cowell was saying, I mean, that's not so important. It's, uh, you know, they're doing it in Europe. What we should be doing is something different, and we should be taking influences from our lives and, and using them. Well, he wrote this, um, this piece for his musical quarterly. It was called Useful Music. And... We don't know if he was familiar with Plato's writing, but, I mean, Plato talked about how music must be used, too. And uh, Cowell thought that music could spur people to action, and it could be used to provoke people or change people's views and even unite 
disparate, different groups. In other words, if groups were disagreeing with each other, you could play music, somehow they would start agreeing. Many people like, like theme songs and stuff to identify them and their cause. We, we identify the people from that. But <clears throat> there's absolutely no indication, as far as I can tell, that music ever engendered a cause. Nobody became a member of PETA because they listened to Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony or something like that. Music doesn't inspire people that way. It it can't get them out to a cause. But Cowell was saying, we need to use music this way. We absolutely need need to look at music like this, and we should take this into consideration when we compose and when we work with music. But no less a luminary than Igor Stravinsky was also writing about this very same subject. And he wrote that music is incapable of representing anything. Now, I don't care what you know about music or not, but I will tell you, Igor Stravinsky to Henry Cowell is like a, a, a local band here and a, uh, a, a, a big rock band like Queen or something like that. In other words, a major world-known rock band, and Henry Cowell would be, would be equivalent to a local composer in California. He had some influence in certain circles, but as far as popularity, Igor Stravinsky was far more popular and influential. Now, when he said something like that, it had a lot of weight to it. He also wrote, and this is Stravinsky, if, as is nearly always the case, music appears to express something, This is only an illusion and not a reality. And what he basically said was that we we project things onto pieces. And and I can tell you some interesting stories about that. But think back to my show on Christoph Penderecki. Penderecki had met John Cage. And in reaction, kind of, I don't know if he heard four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, but he certainly knew about the concept and Cage's concepts of silence. And kind of in reaction, he wrote this piece called Eight Minutes and 37 Seconds, full of sound. Every single iota, every single pore of that piece is oozing sound from beginning to end. And it was a piece supposedly to be the antithesis of silence. Well, uh, along comes a Polish festival uh, for composers, and they uh, in sponsorship with the U.N., and they uh, are doing a memoriam kind of thing for Hiroshima. So his buddy says, hey, look, why don't you submit your piece? I mean, that's really a good piece. And, uh, well, well you've got to change the title. He says, because four minutes and, or eight minutes and 37 seconds isn't going to imp- impress anybody. You know, we've got to come up with a really good theme here. I don't know how it came out, but because it was celebrating the, the Hiroshima thing, he called it threnody to the victims of Hiroshima. Now, Within a matter of days after he published that piece and it was heard, there were people writing about all the things they could hear, bombs dropping, the wailing of the Japanese uh, before the bombs hit, the aftermath, the explosion, the planes flying over, the winds, the howl, the blue. None of it existed. People made it all up and projected it into the piece, not the other way around. Okay, what you're hearing in the background now <clears throat> is a piece called Banshee. I'm going to talk over it, then I'll bring it up and we'll play the to the end of the show, then I'll do a final little announcement. 
Look, Kyle's idea of music bringing disparate people together probably didn't, I, it just doesn't seem to work that way. It certainly can divide people. We know, I mean, mostly it's lyrics. It's not the music itself. But I've talked about riots and things they've had with different shows. His depth of experiment and his inclusion of all kinds of alternative music uh, and all types of sounds, really, Merksum is a, a, one of our best, one of the most innovative composers that we've ever produced. And um, there's a lot of composers who have followed him and been influenced by him. The whole microtonal school came with Henry Cowell. Harry Parch and people like that were listening to the things he was doing with instruments. And some of the effects, like you're hearing in Banshee here, which is a piano, are now part and parcel to the way people compose. Now people can open up the piano and whack away at it and do things with it. It's a very important thing. But you want to buy his music, Read about him. He's a fascinating guy. See if you can dig up his articles. Add his music to your collection. And you'll discover some astounding music and connect with a really creative mind. Now the Banshee. Okay, that's it for this edition of Musical Explorations. And we listen to the music and listen about something about Henry Cowell. Tune in next week and I'll do another composer. I'm thinking Harry Parch or, um, or maybe uh, Lou Harrison. But we'll get to him and we'll get to Stravinsky eventually. Don't worry.